And so Luke chapter 19, verse 1. And this morning we're going to kind of look at um, a subject and, and some content here. And it comes down to salvation and servants is kind of what we're going to look at. First we're going to look at salvation. And then we're going to kind of look at a parable talking about the servants. And the salvation, as Jesus declares it, for Zacchaeus. And when you hear the name Zacchaeus, if you were in the church, you remember Zacchaeus, and there was that little, uh, what was it, Zacchaeus was, a wee little man, a wee little man was he? Come on, there's not, and he climbed a sycamore tree to see what he could see? Yeah, something like that, yeah, see? So that's in the back of my mind when I started studying this week, it's like, okay, Zacchaeus, I kind of know the story, and um, interesting to take a look at. So in verse 1, we're going to start here in Luke chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. And so there's this man, Zacchaeus, that we're introduced to here, and he is the chief tax collector. And in that area... A big area, uh, he had a lot of authority, so he was over the other tax collectors, including that would have been Matthew, who, who left his post to follow Jesus there, and he was rich. And again, um, the, the, it kind of varied over the Roman Empire, but the way Rome dealt with Jerusalem and taxes was, it was like more of the term was called tax farming. So you would bid on a region, so Rome say, we want this much money out of this region, you would bid on it, and you said, yeah, I can do that, I can get you this much from this area. If somebody said, come up and said, well, I can get you more than that, Rome would give that person the authority to collect the taxes, and then their job was to collect those taxes, and whatever they could ta get out of you beyond that, they kept. And so they would take those rules to a whole nether extent and a whole different area and, and pull it. And he had done this because he was rich. He was well off from doing it. So he was the chief tax collector and he was rich. So he was really hated. I mean, you can think about um, Jerusalem, Israel at this time. Could you imagine paying the U.S. government for taxes, continuing like we do, but a foreign power is now taking you over and requires their taxes on top of the taxes? And the person they have send come to your door, unlike the IRS, gets paid by how much they can get out of you. They're taking a percentage, right? You're like, that's just all bad, right? And they can put you in jail and everything else for it. You can imagine how much you would not like them. They still, the Jewish people still paid tribute at the temple and everything else, and now you have this foreign power coming in and now taking more on top of it. And here you have Zacchaeus, who was a Jewish person, who is now working for this foreign government and there. So he really hated. And even in the Roman circles, he would have been looked down upon. Even the Romans, these guys they hired, didn't like them because they were willing to trade, be traitors against their own people in their mind. So there was nobody that liked him, kind of a necessary evil in Rome's eyes. They didn't necessarily like this guy, but hey, he got the job done. And the Jewish people didn't like him either because they got paid on a portion of, or got paid on whatever excess they could get or twist or, you know, extort out of you in that sense. So here's this tax collector, this chief one, very rich man, 
and he sought to see Jesus, but verse 3 says, but he could not because of his, the crowd, and he was of short stature. So he's a shorter guy, and then, you know, we see some people, you know, picking on shorter guys and, and that kind of stigma in society today, but definitely more back then where your brute force mattered, right? You think bullies and stuff, can you imagine in that time when, you know, most of your livelihood and everything else was done by brute labor, you know? And so here he's come, he's come into this position of power and these things. He, he's not very tall and he wants to see Jesus. He's seeking to see Jesus. And we don't know what he's heard of Jesus. He might have heard how in the other areas, you look at all these other, he's the chief tax collectors, many tax collectors under him, Jesus has dined with. You know, the tax collectors were there with John the Baptist and he told them what? To go and, and don't, don't be doing evil anymore. Just, ta just collect what you're supposed to and that's it. And so Zacchaeus knows, hey, Jesus is here and he desires or is willing, and I want to see this guy. He isn't, you know, he hasn't rejected these other people. What about me? And so he desires to see him, so he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was going to pass this way. So he figures out, okay, Jesus is heading down this way. I get up in this tree. I'll be able to see him. Now, culturally speaking, it, it would be awkward. You know, when, when Jesus earlier talks about coming to him like a child, Zacchaeus kind of takes that in a sense, to an extreme as an example. To climb a tree as a man of stature or as an older man would have been unheard of. Even to run would be unheard of. There is nothing you'd read. When we read the story as a prodigal son and the dad runs to meet his son, that isn't something older men did in society. You did not go jogging for exercise. If you had to run, that means you did not have somebody to do it for you. It was not something an adult male would do. Nonetheless, climb a tree. And, I mean, it's kind of hard to picture. I mean, when you read the text, we don't want to go, you know, crazy with our imaginations or nothing. But you can try to picture the scene of what this looked like. You have a crowd. You have Jesus coming. You have this very rich man, great stature. And he's there, and he's wanting to see Jesus. So he decides he's going to climb a tree. And the people around him know who he is, know he's up there. Maybe if he got too much in the crowd, he might have got nudged and bumped too much, you know, or, you know, somebody, you might have to watch your back if you have that many enemies, right? But at the same time, he decides to get in this tree, and he doesn't care. He's not caring about what the crowd thinks or his, his position or his power or any of that. He's, he's more concerned about just seeing Jesus, wants to see this man. And so... It's interesting to see his heart in this and, and his desire in this, regardless of the stature, to lay aside what anybody else thinks. He climbs up into the tree, and verse 5, when, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he's there seeking Jesus, desiring to see Jesus, seeking after him. And you've got to imagine, as here Jesus comes, and you have this guy of this prominence sitting up in a tree, he sees him and says, Zacchaeus, I mean, calls out, who knows if he heard his name in the crowd or, or what, but he calls him out by his name. And he says to him, today I must stay at your house. Jesus invites himself into this guy's house. I must, I will, as a command, I am coming to your house, right? 
And so you, here you have this guy, he's, he's put himself in a situation. I wonder if Zacchaeus was hoping not to even be seen in the tree per se, right? I'm going to get up there, I want to see him, but hopefully nobody catches me in the tree. You know, but he's there and it's interesting. I mean, if you try to picture this in today's world, it'd be kind of hard. It'd be like, um, it'd be like a general in the military. Our top general in the U.S. military finds out that the president's coming and he decides the way I'm only going to get a look at the president's to climb in a tree. You're coming along and you see the U.S. top general, this guy with all this power and statue in a tree. It would be awkward. It would be strange. It'd be like, what are you doing? I mean, you could have probably seek, paid and seeked after a private audience with him or something, you know? And so it's interesting, but Jesus looks at him, and I, I just, you got to imagine that Jesus' reaction on his face seeing it. Just the heart right there, right? There. He is just wanting to see me. He doesn't care about a stature. He didn't, he didn't send a delegate to him. He didn't, you know, we, we've seen other people say, oh, my, my son's sick. I'm not worthy to even come see you. All the different things, ways men of power have approached Jesus, and he's just wanting to see him from a tree. And Jesus says, I must stay with you at your house. In verse 6, though, it is interesting, though, and he says, come down with haste. Be, you know, let's go quickly to your house. And so he made haste. He came down and re, he received him joyfully. It's interesting how Jesus here says, I am coming, I'm inviting myself, but yet still Zacharias had to receive him. You know, and many times in our lives, I believe it's the same, Jesus says, hey, I'm inviting myself into every person's life in this world. There isn't one single person that I am not inviting to be part of me. To, I'm inviting myself in. But yet, you still have to receive me. And we see that, and when you look at John 3.16, and that's where when people want to go, oh, there's just elect, and there's certain people Jesus died for, it doesn't add up with Scripture at all. You know, we, yes, God chose us before the foundations of the earth, but yes, he's, he, is, he is relying on us to in, invite him in. And, you know, God says he died for the sins of the whole world, everybody from the beginning of time to the end of time, so we are all invited. And some will say, well, you know, God only died for the elect. Okay, and then by John 3, 16, who's the elect? Everybody's elect. Who did God come to die for? Everybody. Now, if they receive that election, it's a different story. We could sit down and have a vote, and you could, you know, um, you know, sit down and make me president of Disneyland. Doesn't mean I'm president of Disneyland until I do what? I have to swear an oath. We all get together, we vote. There's a president-elect until he accepts his election. Same thing with the Bible. I believe you, when you can show me somebody that, who is an elect in the Bible, then we can talk about that. But I've never seen anybody by Scripture that is an elect, that God hasn't chosen before the foundations of the earth, that he laid that plan out. But there are some people who do not accept that election. And so we sit here and he receives him and he receives him joyfully. He's happy, he comes down and receives him with joy. In verse 7 it says, But when they, those around, saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. So, again, you have Zacchaeus there, and all those people around him are complaining, going, Universally, we hate this guy. And he is going, intending to go to this man's house. And they're complaining. And when it says they all, it means they all, including his disciples. 
We're going to whose house for dinner? He's a sinner. God, what are you doing here? This is the wrong way. We're going to Jerusalem. Remember, you're going to be king. You're going to rule and reign. These aren't the people you want to be rubbing shoulders with on the way to, you know, knock the Romans out here. The last guy you start rubbing shoulders with is this guy. Nobody likes him, you know? It'd be like, you know, you're running for president and you have the most hated person in the United States and in the world and you decide, I'm going to go hang out with them, you know? get some photographs. It just, you know, they're, they're all complaining. Why are you going with this guy? And so they go, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of all my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore it, I'll restore fourfold. So, as Zacchaeus is there, and the Lord is there, and he's coming in, you see a change in Zacchaeus. His life has been going one direction. He has been after money. He's been after these things. And now he seeks God, and he's desiring this relationship with God. And now he looks at his life, and he declares, I'm going to give everything. I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. I'm going to give it away. And if anything I've taken falsely, by false accusation, anything I've done wrong and wronged somebody with, I'm going to return fourfold. And it's interesting to see this response and Jesus' response to his heart. And what's going on there in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household because he also is a son of Abraham. Now, did salvation come because of Zacchaeus' actions? what he said he was going to do. At this point, he hadn't done it. The, the wording's really clear. It is more, I will give all my, it's, it's a statement that this is what I'm going to do here forward. And so it's not by his actions. He hasn't completed those things yet. And, and you can imagine he might be doing that for years and, and being a huge task and a big expensive cost to him to do those things. There's a cost. But what's amazing is his response. And if you think back to the story of the rich young ruler, he was just the opposite. From a young man, he had power, he had respect, he was a ruler, he had everything. And when he sat down and went over the law, from the law standpoint of the outward, he was justified but he still was lacking something, and God revealed that was his riches and his heart and regarding those things. And Jesus said, what you're lacking is your riches are before me, and you need to give them away. Here, Zacchaeus knows what's wrong right away, right? And his action, his heart's changed, right? The rich young ruler went away regretting what was there. He came to Jesus. He understood who Jesus was. He called him teacher, he respected him, and he went away sorrowful. He had regret, sorrow, sorrow for his actions, but no change of heart, no repentance. And we see a change, we see a turn in Zacchaeus here where he is repentive, and because of that, Jesus declares, salvation today has come to this house, and he is also a son of Abraham, meaning he will re receive Abraham, the promises to the nation of Abraham. How many times had Zacchaeus in that point in his life been told, you have nothing to do with us, you're a traitor, you are no longer a son of Abraham. This 
what we stand for, the God we serve, has nothing to do with you. And at this point, Jesus declares him the son of Abraham. That salvation has come to him. And Jesus makes a simple statement for the, in verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has not come to seek and save which, or for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And I don't know about how many commentaries or anything on this, but I say happy, happy, joy, joy right here, right? God has come to seek and save what is lost. And when you sit down and you look at your life and how many times you just were lost, and he came to seek and save. He's not coming to judge. He's not coming to destroy. He's not coming to punish, but he's seeking, seeking, actively looking for the lost. And that, that just, when you slow down and you think about that in our lives and stuff, if, if you find somebody that's universally hated, do you seek after them? I mean, and it's to realize, to sit down and go realizing God is seeking. God was seeking Zacchaeus. He wasn't avoiding him. He wasn't trying to, you know, well, maybe I, if, if he comes in this and this, God is desiring us who are lost and destroyed in our sin. And it's interesting to see, and, and as you look at this, and you can kind of compare this to the rich young ruler and where they're at and the response, there, are, there is, as we go through this, some doctrinal theological stands that kind of come up that are important and, and we've ran into recently in this fellowship even. And, and currently, you know, there's some movements, you know, and different things. You have two doctrinal statements. One doctrinal statement is, once you're saved, you're always saved. So if you say and you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are saved, and none of your actions after matter. You are saved, that's it. You can get saved, you can go and murder everybody else, and you're still going to heaven. You cannot lose your salvation. The other statement, which is the other extreme, says you believe plus, it's belief plus works, plus things you do. Now, I don't see either one in Scripture. And most people, when they state one of those, is going to say, no, you're one or the other. I don't see one or the other. Yes, I believe once you're saved, you're always saved, and you cannot lose your salvation. I can lose my car keys, but if I take and throw my car keys away, did I lose my salvation or was I ever saved? That's one you're never going to answer because God's outside of time. He looks at our whole life, right? But if we go and we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36, look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 36 here. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this is Peter speaking to the Jewish people, and he's saying, hey, as he's taught through the gospel, taught them who it is, he says, here, let all of Israel know that Jesus, whom you guys crucified, was both Lord and Christ. He was the King and the Messiah, and you crucified him. And in verse 37, you see their response here. It says, and they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
So they're set there, they find out Jesus is Lord. They come to that understanding, they've come to that belief, right? And at least a head knowledge that Jesus is Lord. And they are regret. They have regret. They feel sad for what they've done. They, they don't like what they've done. They regret their sin. But there's still something lacking. Look at verse 38. And it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you sit here and you look at this, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, realizing who Jesus was, realizing he had, was lacking something, believing that this man had an answer, got the answer, and walked away regretting it. Regretting that his money and those things did not walk away with joy, did not walk away with salvation. And he didn't repent. These guys hit here, they were cut to the heart, but they still had to repent, to turn away from so there are people that say, okay, well, if you believe, define believe. Well, then some others will say, oh, if you believe on the, G the Jesus. What do you mean believe on? The belief is going to have an action. Okay, the only way you don't have actions in your life is what? You're in a coma in a hospital. Besides that, you have actions. You're either dead or you're in a coma in a hospital, right? The guy on the cross next to Jesus said, today I'll see you in paradise. That man confessed it. And I believe if you look at the account, argues with the other guy on the cross, like what did he have to do with it? I mean, you talk about a heart change. He's sitting there, there's a heart change. There's, there is fruit of a heart change in that guy's life. There's an action that comes with it, his words that came with it. And so if I sit here and say, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I go and continue to murder people, would you be say to, how would you call me saved? And to say, well, there, it, there doesn't have to be fruit. But to say that there's going to be a change or there has to be an action or a heart change in my heart and that now becomes works? No. A result of God's work isn't works. It's just a result of God's works. It's an action that happens. There should be some kind of change in front of you. If you've confessed and you've come in contact with the God of all creation and your life looks exactly the same as it did after you accepted him as before you accepted him, then something is wrong. I'm not going to say you're saved, you're not saved, but something's wrong. Something's off. And we should, you should consider those things and take those things to heart. And so, again, repentance, there's a change of direction. Now, can you repent? Can you struggle? Can that take time? Yeah. And, and I honestly believe, you know, can somebody accept Christ and never have any good fruit? Yeah. But I think you will always see some kind of fruit. Either you see bad fruit or good fruit. I mean, I guess you could say, oh, okay, maybe they accept and there's nothing that ever changes and it what stays hidden. I don't think that's natural. I think the scripture where it says God's faithful to complete that work, he begins it, he completes it, and there's going to be evidence of it. He desires a relationship. He's going to be faithful in those areas to continue to grow. And I've seen, I, you know, I know when you look at lives in a whole, it's hard because we look at life at once in a point, but I've seen men that have served in church and stuff, walk away from the fellowship, walk away, go into the world, seek after the things of the world, and almost every time they seem to be restored at a point. As time comes, draws near, God's faithful in that sense. There are consequences for their actions, but they still know where the truth is. At the same time, I've seen men 
that know the truth of God's word, know it's true, have rejected it. I don't want him to be king of my life and, and have held that stance, and I don't know if they're going to hold that stance to the end of it, but the desire, the people, they love to get saved. It's the oddest thing. You believe in it so much that you want everybody, all your kids and everything to be saved, but for you yourself, I don't want him to be Lord of my life. I know that's the right choice to do, but I don't want it. And so you sit there and you go, okay, what, at what point in a heart does it change? Well, no, we cannot tell exactly if somebody is saved or not, but the Bible says we should know fruit. And more importantly, we cannot say, oh, this person or that person there is, but you can. You can look at your heart and you can look at your life and you can know. To say, if you believe and there's no fruit, that's a scary statement. How do you know you're saved? How do you know your salvation's there? Is there repentance? Is God convicting you? If there is nothing changing in your life and and he isn't Lord of your life, then you need to consider those things because you do and can know your own heart and he'll make those things clear. And you will, even though Satan will bring in doubts and we struggle in these things, it's obvious if God's convicting you of stuff and those things. I've seen people struggle and it's amazing to see the little bit of fruit. You know, the little change of heart in a situation. There's a battle. You know, if, if you're dead, you're not battling. Dead fish float downstream, right? You see fish that turn around, they're going upstream. Maybe they're not doing very well going upstream, but there's a fight. Something's going on. You know, there was a, a story of a young pastor that came to town, and he was teaching in the new pastor in the, the town. He's teaching about spiritual warfare and stuff, and one of the older pastors in town see him on the street walking by and goes, you know, young man, you need a we're like, you know, we're a small town, a real simple community, nothing big going on here. You know, you're talking about spiritual warfare and all this. We just don't have that kind of problems here. We're a small town, you know. Everybody gets along and all these things. And, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in this. You know, you kind of need to back down that stuff. You might get people worried. And the young pastor goes, you know, if you turn around and you start going the other way, start going against the enemy, you might start seeing it too. You know, if you're okay with everything going on and there isn't a fight, well, maybe you're on the wrong side of the lines. And so we see it there in Scripture. In, uh, in Corinthians 2.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance. This is Paul speaking. And he wrote a letter, and they were grieved by his letter and, and hurt by his letter, and it caused them sorrow. But he says, in verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. That regret, that godly sorrow is a first step, but then the repentance is the next step. It's giving it over. It's trusting in God. It's letting God create in you a new heart, which leads to salvation. And so it's it's not just regret. You know, the sorrow of this world and the sorrow of getting caught and going to jail isn't a godly sorrow. It's, I'm sorry I got caught. If you've had kids, you know the difference. There is repentance and then is, I regret that I got caught. And the regret that I got caught means I'm going to change what I did so I don't get caught. <laughs> not that I'm going to change my heart and not do it any longer. you know. And so we see these things. And I think we can all agree there's nothing that Zacchaeus did in his life to earn salvation. But it's clear that there was a change of heart in this man. A change of direction. You know, and the rich young ruler, although he had done everything according to the law, left sorrowful because there was not a heart change. 
And so as we continue on, we're going to look at this next section, and it's called the parable of the, the uh, mites. But um, it's kind of interesting. We see three people in this next section here. And we see God's servant, or a good servant, a wicked servant, and those who are slain. And, and it's kind of along the same thing of, okay, if we see what salvation is and that there is a repentance, there is a heart change, a work that God does in a life that is evident, that we can see fruit of, right? If anyone's, again, alive for any length of time or not in a coma, there should be some kind of fruit. Not saying it's great fruit. You know, I've, I've rejoiced many times in, in simple fruit, simple little things. You know, um, there, there's been times, you know, somebody prays and, and will, yes, this is what I want to do, accepting Christ, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see some kind of fruit that, that that choice they made was sincere. I'm waiting to see any little heart change. You know, and sometimes it'll go on for a couple months, and then there's a situation, and, you know, you go to a men's retreat or nothing, and they don't say nothing. They seem like they're goofing off the whole time. And then there's that five minutes you know, you're getting ready to leave or whatever, and they come up to you and go, Tim, what? I really need help. God convicted me in this area, in that area, in this area, and I need his help. And you're like, yes, there is some kind of heart. You notice there's something they're not. I'm fine doing what I'm doing. I'm good with it. You know, sometimes it's just that little simple thing. And, it, it, you know, sometimes it, I'm just always, I want to see that repentance. And after that, God's faithful. Whatever stupid thing they put themselves through, God's always faithful to get them. Long as that choice has been made, long as they've received him. And so this next section, it's, it's different than the, the we have the uh, parable of the talents, okay, which is a dollar amount, but, but a, a, a minus is, is less than a talent. This is a different story. It has a, um, different aspects to it. Not saying many times Jesus would probably teach the same lesson, if you would, the same main ideal in, in different ways or, you know, with a slightly different parable and some of the stories are probably said more than once. But in this case, this is a different story we see in verse 11 here. And to kind of give you guys a background of it, um, Herod at the time, there was Herod the Great, right? When, when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was around. When he passed away, he had his sons. And the son, one of the sons from this area, this region, had left, went up to Rome because they were a king under the power of Rome and asked for the power his dad had, Herod the Great. He wanted to have the same power, the same kingdom and authority. So he actually had left the area of Jerusalem, went up there to ask Rome for it, and Jerusalem didn't like the Herods. They were wicked people, and they sent a delegate saying, we don't want to have anything to do with this guy. We don't like him. And so Rome decided to divide up it, and, and now you have Herod the Tetrarch and kind of divided the area up, but he still made him, they still, Rome still made him king over these people who petitioned against it. So that's something that actually happened. So it's interesting when Jesus here uses this parable, and he says, now as they, verse 11 says, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So he's sharing these things because they're thinking he's going to get to Jerusalem, he's going to rule and reign. So he gives this, this picture to them, and he says, verse 12, Therefore he said, a certain noble man went to, into a far country to deceive, 
to receive for himself a kingdom and retur to return. So the guy goes off to a far kingdom to receive the authority from this kingdom to be king over this region, just like the, uh, Herod's son did. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten uh, minants, and said to them, do business until he come. So the story of the talent, he divided up them to different dollar amounts, right? It's one got five, one got three, and we had that. This one, he gives everybody the same amount equally. Calls all ten servants, gives them the same amount. And we're only going to hear back from three. And he commands them to do business, to be about business until he comes back. To work, to invest, to be about the business as he's gone. And so he leaves and he's going to return. And um, verse 14 says, But the citizens hated him and sent a delegate after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And so it was when he returned, verse 15, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So he expected them to do business. He expected them to be profitable. And it's interesting, when he returns, he goes off to this kingdom. He's there. He gets challenged by a delegate. So we have this group of people here. We have the king, we have these servants, ten servants, and we have this group of people, this delegate, that don't want him to rule and reign, do not want him to be the king. And when he gets back, who do you think you would address first? Who wanted me not to rule and reign? Let's go deal with them. That would be my first thought, right? I'm going to go after my enemy first. No, he calls his servants in. Interesting that he holds the servants to account, and I believe the same with God. God's going to hold us to account before judgment, for what he's given us. He's given us this, this capability. He's a king. And he said this because they thought he was going to remember rule and reign in Jerusalem. It's not the case. He was leaving. And the Bible does teach that, hey, we need to be ready for the return of the God at any moment. But it also teaches we need to be diligent about his business and working and investing. So... There's a balance there, again, in Scripture, right? Be ready for the return of the Lord, but be ready because you're doing his business. That means you're investing, you're investing in the kingdom of God and those things. And so he comes back and he asks the servants, and he holds them account in verse 16. It says, he came to the first saying, and the first came to him saying, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. So he was given one and he earned ten more. That's a pretty good return. That's a 1,000% profit margin. That's, that's doing good, right? And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. I have authority. You have authority over 10 cities. So this was a lesser amount than the talents. And because he was faithful this, he is given, because this is called little, he is called to give account. Now, now you're going to be given a lot more. I can trust you with this. You've done well with this. Good servant, I'm going to bless you with more. And, you know, it's one of those things in ministry as well, and as you serve the Lord, so many times people want authority over cities, and God's just trying to trust you with a $100 bill. Be faithful with the $100 bill, you know? 
you want to win the lottery? No, I'm joking. <laughs> but, you know, why would God bless you with more if you can't be faithful with what he's given you? You know, in ministry and, and those things, be faithful with those things. And, and so many times, as men desire to serve in ministry in those areas, you look at it and you okay, well, you know, how about you just serve, you know, helping out here? One thing at uh, school ministry, Calvary Chapel Modesto, one of the things we did, all the pastors, all the staff served cleaning the church. None of us were above that. And, and to be faithful, when you were, didn't matter if you were Damien, Kyle, or in the school of ministry, or one of us, when it was time to clean the church, were you there on time? Were you faithful? Did you do a good job? And if you're not concerned about the physical health of those coming in and keeping that clean, why should we ever consider you for spiritual health and eternal things? It's the truth. And, and it, it was amazing how many guys go, well, no, no, I'm not called to do that. I'm only called to deal with this. You know, and it's one of those things that's kind of not totally unique to Calvary, but it still was. I mean, even Chuck Smith would cruise around the parking lot with his little thing picking up cigarette buds before service and some of those things. If you're not faithful with the little things, why would God trust you with something else? And many times he calls us to be faithful with the little things, the things in our home and, and, and our wives and our children, which aren't little things, you know. But, but those are things that we get ourselves in quicker than he might want sometimes. But, you know, what are you faithful in? What are the little things he's called you to? And are you being faithful in that? And what is the return? He's expecting a return from that. And then as we continue down in verse 18, it says, And the second came to him saying, Master, your mina has earned you five more. So 500% return on that. And in verse 19, likewise, he said to them, you will also be over five cities. Not as good as the first guy in his return, but hey, you've done, done well. You're going to be over five cities. So the, what I was able to trust you with, I'm able, willing to trust you with more. But verse 20, it says, then another came to him, master, here is yours, your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man and collect what you do not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Say, hey, man, I, I, man I, I'm scared of you. I'm scared you gave me this and I've kept it safe. I didn't, I didn't do anything with it, but I kept it safe. It's here for you. I, I, you know, you're, you, you get, you mean, you're the type of man, you get, a, you get a reward from what you don't even deserve. I mean, you get whatever, you have power, you take what you want, you reap what you didn't sow, you have this kind of power, authority, or, or sovereign power over people and things. You know, the, the response could be, you know, here, you're, you have what you need. You don't need me. Who am I? Who am I? And we can do that with God, right? We can go to you and go, okay, God, you gave me this. You gave me these things, and you want me to invest, but you don't really need me. God, you'll get your work done. You will save people. You'll be part of that. You don't really need me. God, you're, you're sovereign. Your, your power is over thing. What could I really do? You, you have authority. You can get whatever you want anyways. You know, uh, you want me to trade for money when you can just order it out of somebody's thing? You could take their, you know, Herod could just take your wealth, period. Rip you, strip you from it. He didn't have to work for it. He didn't have to trade for it. Why, why, would it, why do I need to worry? I'm just, I kept it safe. I left it alone. I did nothing with it. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, then why did you not put the money in the bank 
that I may come that I might have collected it with interest. This servant here, you know, as he sat there, he, he wasn't against him. He was still a servant, but he was just unwilling to take what the Lord had given him and responded. And at first, it can kind of seem pretty rough. I mean, okay, so you gave me this, and I, I just at least kept it safe. It's not like he went out and spent it, right? You call them wicked? I mean, some of us go, you know, if, if, if I gave my kids something, I get home and the, the house is still just there. You know, I'm leaving for the weekend. You come back home and nothing's destroyed, you're happy. Forget if they cleaned up. You know, if they clean it, you know, even if it's just back in the same situation you left it in, good, right? Obviously, you'd call him a good servant if you got home, the house was painted, the lawn was mowed, your car shiny out front, you know, and your projects are done. That'd be a different story. As a parent, we never, we know better than to hope for that. But you're just hoping you break even, right? You get home and the same amount of dishes are on the counter, I'm okay. But in this case, when you slow down and you look at it, and if you were to take a look at this from a point of view of God and what is really going on here, it's different. Could you imagine if a fire chief came and said, okay, I'm leaving the area and I'm going to give three crews the same amount of equipment and there's a flood coming and you're supposed to go out and save people. And one comes back in a boat and says, I've saved 10 people. One comes back and says, I saved five. And the other one says, I kept the boat safe and I didn't drown. Go, you wicked man. You left people out there. How much more was salvation? How much more was salvation where, you know, at first we can say, well, this seems kind of harsh as the master says this. But when you sit down and you look what God desires to do, and again, it's not that God cannot desire, but he desires to do it in us. He desires to produce something in us. He desires us to be part of that work and grow us in that area. And it sits there, though, and you sit down and go, this world is suffering and he desires to work through us. It does baffle me to this day why he does that, why he chooses to work through us. I mean... You could have created a hundred thousand million different ways to communicate the gospel, it seems, more clearly than uh, us fallen wicked men. But that's what he chooses to do is use us. And he wants so not just to use us, not just to save us, but a salvation. A return on that investment, if you would. Not that we bring anything to the table or have anything great to offer. All the resources are his. When you compare this with the rest of Scripture, but... If you take that biblical truth and you sit there and you say nothing and you do nothing with that knowledge and you hide it and you withhold it from those who are hurting, you become wicked. It is wicked to, to leave because we're not talking about just a return on money. We're talking about lives around you, people that are hurting. You know, um, at the DCA graduation, I think I've shared this before, one of the, this guy, a really rich uh, business consultant from uh, Silicon Valley shared several businesses and stuff and he said you know the key to happiness isn't money the key to happiness is a relationship with God and love and he asked the crowd what's the opposite of love and most responded with hate and he said no the opposite of love is complacency or self-seeking it's not to care about those who are around you. It's not that you hate somebody else and you're against them. It's just not to be concerned about anybody else around you. And that is 
a wicked thing. And as believers, when we have the truth and God has given us those things, be faithful with what God's given you. Don't, whatever amount he's given you, be faithful with that. And pray about it. God, what am I supposed to do with what I know? Where have you placed me? I'm not this, I'm not that. You've placed me here in a time and your work and your place for a reason and we should be faithful with those things. And if not, there's going to be a cost. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take from him the mina from him and give it to, the, to him who has ten. But they said, Master, he has ten. And he says, for I say to you that everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So here he is left with nothing. This man, you know, he was there. He is still a servant, right? So we still have the two groups. We see the good servant. We see this wicked servant. And now the next verse, we deal with the others who didn't want him to reign at all. So by this example, this man, you could say, is still saved. He just took and did nothing with what God was there. With what God had done, he didn't go out and do evil with it, right? He didn't go out and waste the money. He didn't go out and, and take the money and go contrary to the king, right? But for those who didn't want the king to be king, they knew he was king. It doesn't change that he is or isn't a king, right? He is still their king, but they just were in rebellion against that king. Verse 27, it says, Bring those here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So when you sit down and you look at it and you go, okay, well, how do you know if someone is saved? Is it all by the fruit? Well, look, this person's fruits are this great and that person's fruit this great. Ultimately, you have to look at your own life and judge. But if there isn't fruit, then there's something wrong with you. If there's bad fruit, then you need to question your salvation. If everything you're doing is contrary to the king, is he king? If there's no good fruit, you know, not to say as Christians we can't stumble, fall, and have bad fruit, but what's the character of a person's life? If you look at a character of a person's life, and it's all destruction, and he's sending out delegates against the king going, I don't want to have you reigning over my life. God, I don't want you to be Lord here. I don't want you to be Lord here. I don't want you to be Lord here. And nowhere in my life do you, I want you to be Lord. Instead of going, God, I know you're Lord of my life, but I dislike the fact you're Lord of my life in this area, and I'm going to have to slowly change as you discipline and change me. There's a difference. In this case, no matter what was going to happen, no matter what these people thought, guess what? He was still going to be king, ruling and reigning. God is still going to be king. God is still king. If, if they believe that he's going to return as king or not, he's still going to be king. If they believe he is king, doesn't mean they are submitted to his authority and believe that he is king. And you can look at this in Revelations. There's the men of the earth, and they cry out against the Lord why he's judging them. So a simple belief that there is a, I believe in Jesus. Well, I believe in Jesus. He's got a car down around the corner from me, a nice Impala. It doesn't make me saved. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? and believe in Jesus as Lord. And so when you come to those things, those, is it works or is it once you're saved, all you're saved? Well, there's a balance in Scripture. Yes, I believe when I'm saved, I'm always saved, that nobody can snatch me out of the hand of the Father. But at the same time, how do you know you're saved? There's going to be some kind of fruit. And that fruit isn't works. 
It's a reaction. It's a cause of, cause of the work that was done in a life. And so, you know, we can see a heart change. And, it, and, and as you walk as a Christian, you can see a heart change, and sometimes you can see the difference between a heart change and religious action. Because some people say, okay, I'm going to come to God on my own term, and now it becomes religious action, and it ain't a heart change. They're doing something to gain something. And you're around them long enough, it comes pretty evident why they're doing something. You know, there isn't really a lordship issue. It's a, it's a I'm going to complete, and they've gone, they haven't had a heart change, they've went to work, so I'm going to work my way to heaven. It doesn't matter if you believe that God came and died and died for us and saved us if you don't want him to be Lord or have any part of him. If God is faithful and he's going to reveal himself to every man, is any man going to go not knowing who God is? Or is every man going going to be rejecting who he is? In other words, the only sin that keeps you out of heaven is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. How can you reject something you do not know? You know. You must know what he is. And you must say, I don't want him. I don't want you to be king. I'm going to reject you as king. And so it's interesting to think, and when you sit down and look at our lives as believers, and, and you, know, you look at these things and go, okay, where, where's the application from this? Well, for us, what has God entrusted you with? Are you faithful in those little things? Because there's going to be a time he wants to put you faithful over greater things. He desires you to be faithful over greater things. And so slow down and look, God, what, are there areas in your life that you've called me to that I'm not being faithful in? What are the simple things? Help me to be faithful in there. And those things can be so simple sometimes. You know, I, I think more, more times in my life I've benched myself out of, I am benched myself from what God's wanted to do in my life because I'm unwilling to be faithful in the little things. Simple things like, how about your time card? Do you actually put down your lunch right? Do you check in right? Do you show up? Do you work hard? Are you working honorable just to your boss? Because your boss is ultimately God, and that's a representation. You know, we can think, well, I want this, you know. Well, you know, I, I only steal a couple hours from my boss. You know, if you add it up, maybe it's three hours a week or a month. Let's say three hours a month. Or, well, let's back it down. 30 hours a month. No, excuse me, back 30 minutes a month. Okay, I only steal equivalent of like 25 bucks a month from my boss because I don't turn in my time right. How many of you guys would stay in the church if I said, oh, you know, your senior pastor here only steals this much a month from the church? Right? How much does God need for a pastor to steal, or forget that, how much does Satan need for a pastor to steal to destroy a church? And trust me, he'll make it bigger. Like we're sitting at men, you know, we, we sit there with, in men's, and I, I love Greg Boyd, an awesome, awesome teacher. I, I love him to death. I met him before he was a senior pastor. But as he taught in the men's study, he goes, you know, sin has a root. And many times we're too busy to, whacking off the leaves and the flower to deal with the heart of the issue and actually have repentance in our life. Why are we continuing to do that sin? What is in our heart that allows us to continue to do that sin? And Satan wants us to just mess with the leaves and let that root continue to grow deeper and deeper until it totally destroys a ministry, totally affects a lot of people. He, he wants return on his investment too. And if you don't think he's coming for a return on his investment with the sin in your life, you're fooling yourself. 
oh, well, I've got away with it now. It's not hurting anybody at the moment. No, he's letting that root get deeper. So when that way, when he rips it out, you ever try to rip out a tree with a big root? You realize half your yard is gone, you know? That's what he's doing. He's letting it grow, and he's going to let it grow as far as he can. So in those things in your life, be faithful to deal with them and, and cut them off down at the root. Ask God, what's my heart issue on this? Why do I keep going back to this? I shouldn't be dealing with leaves, flowers, or seeds from this thing at all. I mean, I need to be dealt with it at the root. And that's where sometimes just being faithful in those little things and looking at those things in our lives, and then, you know, we need to stop going door to door. It's a waste of time. No, there should be some kind of change in your life, some kind of action. And be faithful in the little things because... There's a blessing, and that's the cool thing, right? God doesn't say, hey, I need you to be some great, you know, teacher. I need you to be some great thing to be able to bless you. I want you to be faithful with the little things. Because he's given us the ability to be faithful with the little things. And that's all he's been asked us to do is, hey, just be faithful with the little I've given you. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you tenfold. I gave you one thing, I'm going to give you ten. I'm going to bless you beyond your mind just to be faithful with the little things. You know, everybody thinks, oh, yeah, the, you know, this guy, man, he's got such a huge ministry, and he, you know, Greg Laurie, or this guy, man, his reward in heaven's going to be huge. I have a feeling the person in heaven's going to be the most blessed is some lady that sat in a church for 80 years and just cleaned up after everybody, and nobody knows her name, because she was just faithful with that little thing all the way through. You know, I mean, didn't bicker about it either. So, you know, be faithful with the little things God's calling you to, and you can be certain of your salvation. You can be certain. God's working in your life. He convicts you. You're convicted. You're repentant. You want to change from your old ways. Don't doubt that. Don't let Satan come in and go, see, look, you blew it. You're obviously, you need to consider yourself. No, I'm saved. And I just need God to help me, help me repent in that area. Help me continue in this. So we're going to go ahead and close in prayer. If Gary come up and close us in a final song. Um, be praying for Phil. He's been obviously out sick, um, back and forth with doctors with the blood clotting, kind of some scary things. But also it's been a total blessing to have Gary and his wife come over and share and be able to worship with us from uh, Woodland. Always, you know, that's, I hear these people, pastors always fighting to get um, a worship leader to fill in and I see the post and I'm so happy. It's like I text them and I don't, you know, he's, I don't think there's been a time yet they said they couldn't so far. He told me next week they won't be able to, but it's so blessing. Just like whew, one thing I don't got to worry about and off my plate during the week. Because you do not want me singing up here. I can tell you that. That's for sure. So, or Micaiah. We'll put him in the same boat, but let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that um, your word, Father, is in our word. That you do not fit in our categories. But you are a God, Father, that we can serve and we can come to your word and we can trust it. That we can trust that if we believe on you, you, you save us, God, and you've sealed us. And our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that you're going to be faithful to, to use us, Father, to create in us a new work, to create in us a new heart, to change our hearts. That we would have fruit in our lives, God. That we would have just be able to live a life that is different that we can repent and walk anew, that we can be a new creation, God. Help us just to see that the little things we're not faithful in, that we would be loving towards you, that we would be able just to be a light into this world and into our families, God. 
Help us just to be faithful to everything you've called us to. And we pray you would increase our, our influence, increase our ministries, increase our ability just to share your love with this world. That we would be servants that would see a thousandfold blessings, Father, of just your love going out and lives changed. In Jesus' name, amen.